we are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or a new covenant. New Testament meaning the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm not talking about books, but talking about the blood of Jesus. This is teaching number 54. It's how can others see Jesus in us? And this is part two. It comes out of Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, which reads, Pursue peace. That's what we looked at last week. Pursue peace. That's relational peace. Pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness. That's moral purity. We're going to look at that tonight. So pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness, moral purity, without which no one will see the Lord. Or as we pursue relational peace, as we pursue moral purity in our relationships with others, people are going to see the Lord in us, and we're going to be able to impact them simply by the life we live before them, how we conduct ourselves, how we communicate to people. So Hebrews 12, 14 through 17, pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble and defile many. That's what we looked at in part one. In part two, we're going to look at verses 16 through 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could find no ground for repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. So when we look at Hebrews 12, 14, it says, pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, pursue holiness with everyone. And here he's talking about moral purity. He's not referring to being made holy through the blood of Christ here. He's talking about living a holy life, living a morally pure life. And we're going to look at a lot of verses where scripture teaches this. Last week, we looked at that we've been made holy through the blood of Jesus. Pursue, pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So the writer's not saying, as we pursue holiness, we will see the Lord. And if we don't pursue holiness, then we won't see the Lord. I think in the context, he's saying, as we pursue a morally pure life, people will see the Lord in us. We're going to see that later in our study in Joseph and how Joseph lived his life, and people saw God in Joseph. We know that pursuing a holy lifestyle doesn't make us holy before God. We looked at several verses last week, Hebrews 10.10, and by that will, that's the New Testament of grace, that's the blood of Christ poured out for our sins. Through what Jesus has done for us, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. So Jesus has made us holy through his blood. It says the same thing in Hebrews 10, 14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are made holy. Some versions will put the word being in there, but that word is not in the original manuscripts. It's we have been made holy. We have been perfected because of what Christ has done for us. We're perfectly forgiven. We're perfectly righteous. We're perfectly purified from all sins 
which is what holy means. We've been purified from all sins. We've been cleansed from all sins. We've been made innocent and pure before God because of the blood of Christ. And then Hebrews 13, 12 says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So we are made holy by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins, purifies us from all sins, leaving us righteous before God, innocent before God, clean before God, pure before God. Internal cleansing, external cleansing, Jesus' blood has cleansed us from all sin. So since we've been made holy through the blood of Jesus, then the question is, what does the writer mean in Hebrews 12, 14 when he writes, pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, or no one will see the Lord in us if we're not pursuing peace with them and purity in our lifestyles before them. Let's look at some different translations of how they translate Hebrews 12, 14, how they translate this word holiness. We're going to look at the literal standard version of Hebrews 12, 14, which reads, pursue peace with all and the separation apart from which no one will see the Lord. The literal standard version uses the word separation. So does the Young's literal translation. Hebrews 12, 14 and the Young's literal translation reads almost exactly the same. Pursue peace with all and the separation, apart from which no one will see the Lord. I take that to mean if our lives are no different than the lives of people around us, then people aren't going to see Christ in me. People notice Jesus. Jesus was sinless, and he was separated from sinners, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. But at the same time, he was a friend of sinners. So though Jesus was a friend of sinners, he didn't participate in the sins of the sinners whom he was a friend of. That's why he stood out. That's why people saw something different in Jesus. That's why the prostitutes saw something different in Jesus. The tax collectors saw something different in Jesus. He was a friend of the tax collectors, but he wasn't stealing from people. He was a friend of the prostitutes, but he wasn't participating in sexual immorality. And there was just something about Jesus where people noticed him. He was different. He was separated from the crowd. He stood out in a crowd because of his love and because of how he lived. So Paul writes about separation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. And he gives five thought-provoking questions to the Corinthians here. Some of the Corinthians are not living a separated life. They're joined up with the unbelievers in their sinful lifestyle. And to these believers in Corinth, who are joined together with sinners living a sinful lifestyle, they're saints. And Paul opens up the letter in Corinthians calling them saints. Some of the saints in Corinth, some of the holy ones who have been made holy by the blood of Christ, who placed their faith in Christ, are actually now participating in the sins of the unbelievers in Corinth. And Paul gives them five thought-provoking questions in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, through 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 
if you want to make a note, you can also look in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 about the sins they were participating in. But let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, with an emphasis on this word separation. Paul writes, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That's participating in the sinfulness of unbelievers. For what do righteousness, in this context, righteousness is a morally pure lifestyle. Every time we see the word righteous in the Bible, it's not necessarily talking about a believer's righteousness in Christ. The context is going to tell us what righteousness means. It could be talking about our righteousness in Christ, but it could be talking about our righteousness or a moral lifestyle. Context will tell us. It's like the word light, L-I-G-H-T. I can say something to the effect, is this light? And if I say, is this light, L-I-G-H-T, well, nobody's going to know if I'm talking about light being heavy or not heavy, or if I say, is this light, am I talking about light and darkness? It's the same with the word righteousness. The context is going to tell us, is it talking about morality, or is it talking about my identity in Christ? The same with the word R-I-G-H-T, right. Depending on the context, if I use the word right, it can mean the opposite of left, or it can be the opposite of wrong. But the context is going to tell us what the meaning of the word right is. Same way with righteousness. In these verses, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, Paul asks a question. He says, for what do righteousness, that's a morally pure lifestyle, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? He's seeking to get the Corinthians who are living an impure, unrighteous, immoral lifestyle to think, to think about how they're living based upon they've been identified with Christ. They've come to faith in Christ now. They have been declared righteous in the sight of God. Been, they've been made righteous through what Christ did for them. They've been justified. So he's seeking to get them to think about their behavior and how they're living. And I know in, in the modern day grace movement, there's a tendency to not talk about behavior because so often within the grace movement, any talking about behavior to those in that movement, and I'm one of those within the grace movement, but to many of those in the grace movement, if you talk about behavior, then you're a legalist. Well, that would make Paul a legalist because he talks a lot about behavior in all of his letters, moral behavior, immoral behavior. And he's doing this with the Corinthians. He's talking about behavior. And he says, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And then he gives them five questions to evaluate not being yoked together with unbelievers, meaning participate in the sinful lifestyle of unbelievers, joining with unbelievers in what they do. Remember, Jesus was around sinners, but he didn't participate. He wasn't yoked together with sinners, with those living an immoral lifestyle. He stood out. He was separated. There was something different about Jesus when he was around people. So Paul writes again, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, that's participating in the sinfulness of unbelievers. For what do righteousness, that's a morally pure lifestyle, 
and wickedness, that's an immoral lifestyle, have in common? Or what fellowship, which is partnership between believers and unbelievers joining together in sinful living, that's the word fellowship there, it's the word, it's partnership. Or what fellowship can light, that's believers, have with darkness, that's unbelievers? How, how can believers participate in the sins of unbelievers? Verse 15, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial means wickedness. It means sinfulness. It can mean Satan. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were discovered, had the word Belial as a synonym for Satan. So what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? In Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, it, it talks about the contrast between Jesus and the morally pure life that he lived, and the immoral lives of the unbelievers. And so the writer of 2 Corinthians, who is Paul here, is talking about what, what agreement, what harmony, you being a believer in Christ, yet participating in the sins promoted by Satan. He's telling the Corinthians, how can you be joined together with the unbelievers in these kinds of lifestyles? And another question he asks is, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever when it comes to the sinful lifestyles? Verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God, that's us, that's the Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts of believers. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? That's the false Greek gods. There were so many false gods. There were so many idols little miniature idols that were sold in the marketplace. And the believers in Corinth were, were mingling together in the sins of the unbelievers and in the false gods of the unbelievers. And Paul's asking a series of questions for them to think about the life they're living. They have nothing in common with the unbelievers and their lifestyles. So he's asking them to come out from that for we are the temple of the living God, meaning all the idols they would see in Corinth were dead gods. They weren't real. The believer is worshiping and is in relationship with the living God. So he asked these five thought-provoking questions, and then he presents them three thought-provoking scriptures. They're out of the Jewish scriptures, and he's using these scriptures to get the believers in Corinth who are participating in the sins of unbelievers to think about the life that they're living. He uses three thought-provoking scriptures. He says, as God has said in the Jewish scriptures, and is referring to partially in these, the coming New Testament of grace. When we, when we know God personally, we know God relationally. As God has said, referring to the Jewish scriptures, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a quote from Leviticus 26, 12, Jeremiah 31, 33, Jeremiah 32, 38, Ezekiel 37, 27. We see these words in Revelation 21, 3 as well. It reveals the heart of God to be in relationship with people, that he comes and he lives among us. We are his temple. He now indwells us. He lives within us. He, he walks with us. We're in relationship with Him. And so the thought-provoking scripture is, hey, you're joined to God in a love relationship. 
So don't mix in the sins of the unbelievers. You're now in relationship with God. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, therefore, because you're in relationship with God, he presents another scripture from the Jewish scriptures. He says, come out from them and be separate. So there's the word separate. Remember, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The Young's literal translation and the literal standard translation translate the word holiness as separate. So we see Paul using the word separate here to come out and be different. Don't join in the sins of the sinful culture around them. And so he's quoting Isaiah 52, 11, Ezekiel 20, 34, Ezekiel 20, 41. He says, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Be different. Don't join in their sinfulness. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Now we know that we're accepted completely in Christ. Paul has just written about the entire New Testament of grace in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 starting in verse 1 all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, that God's not counting our sins against us, that we're in a New Testament of grace. We're not under the, the ministry of law, which is condemnation. We're under the ministry of grace, which is salvation and transformation. So he's writing to a group of people here whom he's just explained to them the New Testament of grace, that Jesus took all of our sinfulness upon himself, and now he's given us his righteousness. We've been reconciled to God. So he's writing to people who's responded evidently to this New Testament of grace, to the work of Christ on the cross, yet some of them are continuing to participate in the very sins that Jesus died for. They're living a sinful lifestyle. They're joining with sinners in their lifestyle, though they're saints. They're the butterfly that's gone back to living like a, a caterpillar. And Paul's saying, listen, you're a butterfly. Separate yourself from the caterpillars. Be different. Jesus lived a life separated from sinners. That's Hebrews 7.26. His lifestyle was holy. His lifestyle was pure a morally pure, clean lifestyle, yet he was a friend of sinners, right? You can read about that in Matthew 9, 10 through 11, Matthew 11, 19. Paul's not saying be isolated from sinners. He's really specifically referring to a group of believers in Corinth who are willfully participating in the sins of the culture around them, yoking up with the unbelievers in their sin, participating with them in their sin. And Paul's writing to them saying, he gives them five thought-provoking questions, three thought-provoking scriptures, so they'll come out of that lifestyle and they will be separate. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. So Jesus lived a life separated from sinners, yet he was a friend of sinners. I had a friend who, he understood that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And in his mind, Jesus being a friend of sinners, he reconciled in his mind, Jesus was parting it up with them. That was just not the case. Jesus was different. That's why people were drawn to him, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. 
he lived a sinless life. And that's what separated him from them. But he was very loving. He was very kind. He wasn't like the Pharisees who were very judgmental and who tried to separate themselves from the sinners of the day. And in doing so, looked down upon them as if somehow they were better than them. Jesus lived a life separated from sinners in lifestyle, but he loved them. It's not that he looked down upon them. He loved them and ultimately gave his life for all sinners for all people in the entire world. That verse, Isaiah 52, 11, that Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, originally was in Isaiah 52, 11, where the Jewish captives, they were in Babylon, and they were about to leave Babylon. And the Lord, through Isaiah, is saying, listen, leave Babylon behind. Don't bring anything out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. And I think what Paul's saying here is, listen, you've you've now been reconciled to God. You're in relationship with God. Leave your old lifestyle behind. Don't bring your old lifestyle into this new relationship that you have with God. And then he writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, and this is the third thought-provoking scripture, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So what we see is Paul is appealing to these Corinthian believers whose behavior is marked by a sinful lifestyle, and he's appealing to them based upon the fact that they're in relationship with God now as a father is with a son, as a father is with a daughter. And because they're in this new covenant relationship with God, they've been reconciled to God. They've come to faith in Christ and they've moved into reconciliation with God. They've received forgiveness. They've received righteousness. He's appealing to them that the motivation is a relationship with God that Come out and be separate because now you're in relationship with God. Jesus lived in relationship with the Father. We read the book of John. Jesus was constantly communing with the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And we have that same relationship with God that Jesus did, that father relationship, that father-son relationship, that father-daughter relationship. And that's what he's appealing to a pure lifestyle is based upon the relationship that they now have with God. Second Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, therefore, since we have these promises, what promises? What's the promises that he just read about in these thought-provoking scriptures? I will live with them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. These promises of, of the Jewish scriptures about the coming new covenant relationship that we have with God. He's appealing to that new covenant relationship and seeking to motivate the believers in Corinth to come out of the sinful lifestyle they're participating in, to separate themselves from the sinful life they're participating in, and to not only to come out from that because of their relationship with God. But he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, therefore, since we have these promises, that's the new covenant relationship with God, 
Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. Now, remember we started in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That is the introduction to the book of Hebrews. The rest of Hebrews explains the first three verses. In the first three verses, it says, After providing purification from sins, Jesus sat down. The writer of Hebrews explains that in the book of Hebrews. All right. We've been purified from all sins. We've been cleansed from all sins by the blood of Christ. Yet we also see in Scripture, here's one of the verses, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us purify ourselves. Now, what does that mean? I think in the context, it means to come out of the impurities of the sinful lifestyle of the unbelievers. It means to get sin out of our lives to get sin out of our bodies, to get sin out of our minds, to disconnect from the sinfulness of those practicing sin. We're going to say in a minute in this verse, sin contaminates. Sin is a poison. Sin is destructive. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises of a new covenant relationship with God, where we're His sons and daughters, let us purify ourselves. Let's get sin out of our lives. Let's get sin out of our bodies. Let's get sin out of our minds. Let's disconnect from the sinfulness of those practicing sin in the context of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, these words. He says, Do not be misled. In the context of 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, is do not be misled by those teaching the philosophy of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's telling the believers, listen, there's a group of people teaching a philosophy that in the end we all die, and because we all die, live it up while you can because you only live once, and then you're going to die, so you might as well have as much fun as you can while you're alive, because one day you're going to be dead. Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He's saying, listen, if there is no resurrection, then yeah, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. But because of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says life does have meaning. Life does have purpose. Therefore, don't be misled by those promoting the philosophy of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And then he quotes a Greek poet in 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, where he says, bad company corrupts good character. And then he says in verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 15, come back to your senses. That means Corinthians. Come back to your senses. There is a God. Life does have meaning. Life does have purpose. There is a resurrection. So don't be misled by those teaching the dangerous philosophy of eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, life now has meaning. The resurrection changes everything. It changes how people view life and how we live our lives. So 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And that's what he's appealing to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. He, he's saying, listen, you're hanging out with some bad company. Your conduct is bad. You've got to come out from them. You're being corrupted. You've got to purify yourself from the corruption 
that's taking place in your mind, in your emotions, mentally, physically, internally, externally, as you participate in the sins of unbelievers, you've got to come out from that company. So 1 Corinthians 15, 33 through 34, do not be misled. Come back to your senses as you all, senses being there is a God, life has meaning, life has purpose. There is a resurrection. Come back to your senses as you all and stop sinning. We even see in the grace movement now, which is gaining traction that believers can't sin. Sometimes I think a lot of the believers in the grace movement aren't reading scripture. They're repeating what they hear different people say. But what they're repeating isn't biblical. It's just what they're hearing people say. And I've seen it that, oh, a believer can't sin. That's taking verses out of context in some of the verses. Believers can sin. I mean, we see it in Paul's writings. And Paul's saying, listen, come out of that sinful lifestyle. He's pulling people. He's trying to pull these Corinthians out of the sinful lifestyle based upon their relationship with God, this close, intimate, loving relationship with God as Father. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 again. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. That's getting sin out of our lives, getting sin out of our bodies, getting sin out of our minds. It's disconnecting from the sinfulness of those practicing sin. It's not partnering with those who are practicing sin. Sin is toxic. And part of purifying ourselves, I used to work with men who had addictions. They had alcohol addictions. They had opioid addictions. And alcohol and opioids poison the mind, poison the brain, I should say, poison the body. And many of the men, before they could come into treatment, would have to detox. They would have to spend a week or so detoxing from all the poisons that their body had absorbed through the alcohol and through their pill addiction. And that's what sin does. Sin is toxic. Paul is saying, listen, detox. You have to detox from the contamination of sin by getting it out of your life, getting it out of your body, getting it out of your mind. And that takes time. Paul writes in Romans 6, 11 through 22, about presenting our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness and not instruments of wickedness, which is what he was writing about in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Paul's writing in Romans 6, 11 through 22, to say a person, a believer, can present their bodies to God as an instrument of righteousness, that's an instrument of morality in context, or we can present ourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness. So again, these are choices that believers can make. And Paul is calling the Corinthian believers who are participating in sin, who's offering their bodies to sin as an instrument of wickedness, to come out of that lifestyle. All right, back to 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates. There it is, contaminates. That's that toxic effect of sin upon the brain, upon the body, upon the spirit, upon the mind. It contaminates. Sin is dangerous. Sin is destructive. 
sin is deceptive. It's harmful. Sin entered the human race through Adam. Eventually, we see Cain killing Abel. And then we see the days of Noah and all the violence that came upon the human race when sin entered the human race. We see the effects of sin upon the human race today all over the world. The chaos, the conflict, the crime. We see people being trafficked, sold into sexual slavery all over the world. I mean, we see the effects of sin. So sin is dangerous, sin is destructive, sin is deceptive. And Paul is telling the Corinthians to remove yourself from that sinful lifestyle. Purify yourself. Get yourself out of that sinful lifestyle. Sin looks pleasurable at first. Sin looks exciting. It looks pleasurable. It's, it's like a fish, and the fisherman throws the bait out. The fish can't see the hook in the bait. All the fish sees is the bait, and the bait looks shiny, and the bait looks enjoyable, and the bait looks eatable. And the fish desiring the bait reaches out, grabs a hold of that bait, but then discovers there's a hook in it. And it hooks itself into the fish, and now the bait has the fish. And that's a lot like sin. Sin looks pleasurable in the beginning, but it's painful in the end. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians out of that sinful, destructive, dangerous, deceptive lifestyle into a lifestyle where they're purifying themselves from that sinful lifestyle based upon their new covenant relationship with God. All right. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. I mentioned that a few minutes ago about how Jesus lived a life separated from the sinners of his day. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 says that that, however, is not the way you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. It's referring to the morality of Jesus here. First Peter 2, 22 talks about Jesus was without sin. Hebrews 7, 26 talks about Jesus was without sin. And so Paul is appealing to the moral life of Jesus as an example of living a moral lifestyle. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, follow the example of Jesus as it relates to a moral lifestyle. That's what Paul's referring to here in Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learn when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22 of Ephesians 4, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Now we know he's talking about morality here. You were taught about the way Jesus lived his life morally and to follow his example of a moral lifestyle. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. That's the old system of behavior, the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So old self here is not the old identity. And that's how it's taught a lot in the grace circles. It's not the old identity here. It's the old pattern of behavior to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, the sinful desires of the flesh. Remember, sin is deceiving. Just like that bait is deceiving, it deceives the fish, but there's a hook in the bait. So Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted. Corrupted. Sin is deceitful and sin corrupts. 
That's why Paul tells the Corinthians to come out from among them, to be separate, to purify yourselves from this sinfulness. And he goes on in Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, he says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, a new way of thinking, to put on the new self, a new way of living, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, back to 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness, meaning growing in morality, maturing in a moral lifestyle, out of reverence for God or respect for God that's based upon the new covenant, a respect for God that's based upon the promises of we are his sons and daughters. He is our loving father. So maturing in holiness, perfecting, maturing, or growing in morality, growing in purity, coming out of the sinful lifestyles that he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 6 through 7, 1. This is what Joseph did. Joseph had great reverence for God. Remember Potiphar's wife coming to Joseph, wanting a relationship with Joseph? Joseph's response to her was, how could I do this great evil, adultery, and sin against God? So Joseph saw sin as evil. He knew the evil consequences of sin. He knew the destruction of sin. He knew the danger of sin. He knew the, the deception of sin. And he had such a respect for God that he didn't want to bring God into that sinful lifestyle. So he said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He had a great respect for God based upon God's love for him. So we're seeking to understand what the writer of Hebrews means when he says to pursue holiness in Hebrews 12, 14. We're examining different translations of Hebrews 12, 14. So we looked at the translations that use the word separation. Now let's look at some of the translations that use the word sanctification. The New American Standard Bible, the 1995 and 1997 edition, the Amplified Bible, the American Standard Version, the New Heart English Bible, and the World English Bible, they all use the word sanctification. The New American Standard Bible, 1995 edition, says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification comes from the root word here, hagios which means to set apart. It's the same as separation. It's, it's separate from that group of people living in that lifestyle. Be different. Be set apart. Be different than them, because the only way they're going to see Jesus in you is this, there's something different from you, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Jesus sanctified himself. Look at John 17 through 19. Jesus said, I sanctify myself. Now, what Jesus meant there was, I set myself apart from sinners. You can read that in Hebrews, again, chapter 7, verse 26. Jesus set himself apart from sinners, yet he was a friend of sinners. And Jesus laid down his life for his friends, for sinners. But the word sanctify here means to set apart. So, pursue peace with all men and set yourself apart from all men. Don't be like the culture, the sinful culture that's around, because if you are like the sinful culture, then nobody's going to see Jesus 
within you is what Paul's saying to those reading the letter in Hebrews. So Jesus says, I sanctify, I set myself apart. In the context, he's setting himself apart to go to the cross, to die for the sins of the world. We set apart things all the time. The word holy, sanctify, set apart. You know, we, we have china cabinets in our homes, right, where there are certain dishes that are set apart from the other dishes. The Jewish people would set apart certain bowls and cups and plates for special uses. We do the same thing. We, we set apart certain days and certain months. January is National Blood Donor Month. February is American Heart Month. Certain days, we have Veterans Day, we have Memorial Day. Just like certain months are set apart and certain days are set apart, I think what the writer in Hebrews is saying, listen, set yourself apart for moral purity to flow through your life so that people can see Jesus in you. Paul wrote to Timothy, telling Timothy that he and Timothy had been set apart by God for the special purpose of communicating the gospel of grace. We can see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. They had been called to a holy life or a life set apart by God for the purpose of communicating the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 22, talking about that in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, that's those used for special occasions, but also of wood and clay Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Special purposes, the gold and silver, common use, wood and clay. Those who cleanse themselves, that's the same idea that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 7.1. He tells them to purify themselves from the contamination of a sinful lifestyle. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter, that's the common sinful behavior of the world, will be instruments for special purposes made holy, that's a person's decision to sanctify himself or set himself apart so that God can use him, setting himself apart from a sinful lifestyle. That's what Joseph did. He set himself apart. Wherever he went, he set himself apart from the rest. Paul tells Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. There he's talking about moral living. Remember, in context, we've got to let the word righteousness What's the context? How is it being used here? Here it's being used as a moral lifestyle. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue a moral lifestyle, righteousness, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So remember, bad company corrupts good character. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 through 34. Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to surround yourself with people who are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart, meaning a desire to live a life that is not contaminated by sin. I've got to get around people who who share that desire because there's strength in numbers. And he's telling Timothy to, to separate yourself from those pursuing the evil desires of youth and surround yourself with those who are wanting to live a morally pure life. So we're looking at how different translations use the word sanctification for the word holiness in Hebrews 12, 7, when it says pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness, as well as separation, as well as sanctification, depending on the translation. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, where he talks about sanctifying one's body or setting aside one's body 
for sexual morality rather than presenting one's body as an instrument of sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, meaning that you should set aside your body for sexual purity, not for sexual immorality. That you should avoid, there's the word separate, set aside, separate. That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable to God. Remember 1 Corinthians 6.20 talks about that God didn't design the body for sexual immorality. He designed the body for sexual morality, but not sexual immorality. And Paul calls on the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, to honor God with their bodies in the context sexually. It's like this, a fire in the fireplace is where a fire belongs. It warms the home. But if we take that same fire and we light the curtains, we're going to burn down the house. That's what Paul is saying, is that God's designed sex to be used morally with, within the context of a husband-wife relationship. Sex outside of that relationship is destructive. And, and we can see the destruction of sexual immorality all over the world today. It's not that God doesn't want anybody to enjoy sex. It has to be in the place where he created it. Otherwise, it's going to contaminate society, which we've seen that happen. And he's telling the, the Thessalonians to, to be sexually moral, to learn to control their bodies and to honor God with their bodies. So with this understanding of holiness, let's look at Hebrews 12, 14 through 17 again. It says, pursue peace, that's relational peace with others, as well as holiness, that's moral purity with others, without which no one will see the Lord. That's no one will see the Lord in us. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up to cause trouble and defile many. That's associated with pursuing peace in our relationships with others. Now, I believe, starting in verse 16, he's talking about moral relationships with people, moral purity with people. He says in verse 16 of Hebrews 12, See to it that no one is sexually immoral. So now the writer of Hebrews is addressing the same topic that Paul addresses in Corinthians, that he addresses in Thessalonians, the topic of sexual morality. So that's referring back to pursue holiness with everyone. Set apart your body for moral purity, and specifically in the context for sexual purity. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Now, Esau was the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau had a twin brother, Jacob, who later became Israel, which Jacob had 12 sons, and that's where Israel, the nation of Israel, comes from. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal... So Esau agreed to a deal with Jacob to sell his birthright to momentarily satisfy his hunger. Who for a single meal sold to Jacob his birthright. That's The birthright was a special inheritance or special privileges belonging to the firstborn son in the Jewish race that made the firstborn son's inheritance greater than the other siblings. So Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, and then Jacob got everything that would have been Esau's. 
Esau sold his birthright for a momentary pleasure, but he experienced a lifetime of pain as a result. For you know that afterwards, after Esau made the decision to sell his birthright, when he wanted to inherit the blessings, the, the blessings of Isaac, of bestowing the inheritance upon Esau at the time of Isaac's death, the birthright was no longer his. He had sold it to his twin brother. He was rejected. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could find no ground for repentance, meaning he couldn't go back and undo his decision. He couldn't reverse his decision. His, his decision had consequences. And though he sought the blessing with tears, though he was very remorseful about that decision, he could not reverse the decision. If you want to read more about Esau and Jacob, you can look at Genesis 25 through 27. It gives the full account and the full story. But what we see in this account is we see that Esau made a single decision to satisfy a momentary hunger, causing him to lose permanently what he later wanted deeply. And that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making here. Don't be like Esau. Esau experienced the results of his decision. He later regretted his decision. He felt remorse for his decision, but he could not reverse his decision. So the writer of Hebrews, you can experience momentary pleasure of sexual immorality, but it can cost you a lifetime of pain. You can lose your marriage, can have damaging effects on your life. You could lose your, you could lose your job. I mean, there's so many negative consequences for a moment of pleasure. Look back in Hebrews 12, verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could find no ground for repentance, though he sought the blessing with tears. It's the same in our day just like it was for those in AD 65. It, it's easy to fall into a sexual or moral relationship, a relationship that's outside the bounds of marriage. It's easy to make one impulsive, one immoral decision for pleasure that ultimately leads to pain. One choice can lead to devastating consequences. I used to tell my sons all the time when they were younger, you can make a thousand right decisions but one wrong decision can undo the thousand right decisions. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we're loved. Yes, we're accepted. Yes, we're in the new covenant. No, God's not counting our sins against us. But even though God's not counting our sins against us, our sins still have consequences. They not only affect us, they affect others. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And remember, the writer of Hebrews has taught extensively about the new covenant of grace. The majority of the book is about the new covenant of grace. Yet he also understands that we still live in bodies that are tempted, that are vulnerable, and it's easy to get caught up in sexual morality or any other type of morality. And in our humanity, we can make one wrong decision and undo a thousand good decisions. And the consequences of that one bad decision can follow us for the rest of our lives and can flow in the lives of other people, causing damage to their lives as well. There's one person in Scripture, there's others, but the one that comes to my mind is Joseph. Joseph thought through a sinful short-term decision, envisioning the long-term consequences. 
And this decision was, do I have a relationship with Potiphar's wife or not? Do I commit sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife or not? Joseph thought through that decision. If you want to read more about the life of Joseph, you can read Genesis 37, Genesis 39 through 50. You can also look in Psalm 105, 17 through 22. We see in Joseph's life that he was abused by his brothers. He was attacked by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery. When he was sold into slavery, they bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. You can read about that in Psalm 105, 18. So he was abused by his brothers, attacked by his brothers, was accused by Potiphar's wife of rape. He was thrown into prison. He was abandoned in prison by a friend. Joseph could have very easily developed a poor me mentality, a victim mentality. Joseph could have very easily blamed God and blamed his brothers for his lot in life. Had Joseph allowed himself to become a victim, had Joseph developed a poor me mentality, it's more than likely Joseph would have excused a sinful sexual or moral relationship with Potiphar's wife by blaming God and others. God, you've abandoned me. God, you've rejected me. God, you allowed all this to happen to me. What's the use? My life's over. I'm a victim of my circumstances. I've had a lot of pain in my life. I deserve some pleasure. Somebody's valuing me. Somebody's attracted to me. Somebody wants to treat me with worth and value. Why not have a relationship with Potiphar's wife? But remember, he said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He continued to see God as a loving God. He continued to see God as a kind God. He continued to see sin as destructive and deceptive and dangerous as a great evil. And he didn't allow himself to become a victim by saying, well, look what my brothers did to me. They've ruined my life. At least I can have some kind of relationship, some kind of fun, some kind of excitement, some kind of pleasure, because my life sure has been painful. Had Joseph made this one wrong decision, he probably would have died in a prison cell in Egypt, a very bitter, angry slave. But he continued to make the right decisions, even though he had been wronged by so many people in his life. Had Joseph allowed himself to become a victim, he would have never been elevated above others. Now, Joseph never tried to elevate himself above others, but when people saw that there was something different about Joseph, and they saw that he was a very gifted person, and he was a person who pursued peace in his relationships, pursued purity in his relationships, they put him into positions positions at Potiphar's house, positions in the prison, and ultimately a position in Egypt that was basically the ruler of Egypt. His decisions were the decisions that guided Egypt. But he was able to be elevated because he pursued peaceful relationships and he pursued purity. People took notice of that, and then they put him in positions of leadership and management because of his integrity, because of his, his character. He could have very easily been a victim. If Joseph would have allowed himself to become a victim, he never would have excelled in his circumstances. He never would have excelled in his gifts of management and gifts of leadership. 
If he would allow himself to become a victim, he never would have experienced the journey of God's grace, taking him from the pit to the prison, to the position of second in command of Egypt. Had he allowed himself to become a victim, we would not have Joseph's life as an example for us to follow. But Joseph set himself apart. He separated himself. He sanctified himself, meaning he set himself apart, separated himself from sin. He could have had that sexual relationship with Potiphar's wife, but he set himself apart from it, separated himself from it. He did not become contaminated with that sin. And then he was elevated by people to the top of leadership in Egypt. So what empowered Joseph to resist the victim mentality so that he could become victorious in life? And a victorious life to me is a life that impacts the lives of other people. That's a real victorious life. Joseph's life always impacted the lives of others in a very positive way, even though a lot of negative things have happened to Joseph. There's a couple of verses that stand out. Genesis 39, 2 and 30, 39, 31 says, the Lord was with Joseph. I think Joseph knew that despite everything that happened to him, the Lord was with him and the Lord loved him. And then secondly, what enabled him to overcome all that had been done to him was not only did Joseph know the Lord was with him and loved him, but Joseph gave away grace to others, unmerited kindness, unlimited forgiveness. We, we read about that in the story of Joseph in Genesis. We never see Joseph getting revenge. We always see Joseph giving away grace, even to his accusers, even to his abusers. He, he doesn't take on a victim mentality because he knew God loved him and that God was with him. So because Joseph knew the Lord was with him and loved him, Joseph pursued peaceful relationships with people. Joseph pursued pure relationships with people. And as a result, people saw something different in Joseph, which enabled them to see God in Joseph impacting their own lives. We can read about that in Genesis chapter 41, verse 39. So let's finish where we started with Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with everyone. That's peaceful relationships. We see Joseph doing that. We see Jesus doing that. Pursue holiness with everyone. We see Jesus doing that. We see Joseph doing that. Without which no one will see the Lord. Because they pursued peaceful relationships and pure relationships, people noticed that there's something different about Jesus. There's something different about Joseph. And and to the Hebrew people within their culture, within their community, surrounded by people persecuting them for their belief in Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, pursue peace with your persecutors. Pursue morality with those whom you're around. And then people will see Jesus in you. Pursue peaceful relationships with others by showing grace, he writes in Hebrews 12, 14 through 17 and pursue pure relationships with others by living morally. So by pursuing peaceful and pure relationships with others, people could see Jesus in these Jewish believers, and the same with us today. As we pursue peaceful relationships with others, as we pursue pure relationships with others, then people can see Jesus in us, and we can impact the lives of people the way Jesus did and the way 
Joseph did. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.